1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a quick and dirty tip about what to call yourself if you split your time between two cities. A meaty middle about Kurt Vonnegut's semicolon quotation, and a tidbit about the phrase off the cuff. And now, on to interurban. When you split your time between the East Coast and the West Coast, you can call yourself bicoastal. But what about when you're splitting your time between two cities, like a listener named Jeff, who splits his time between New York City and Boston, and they're both on the East Coast? This seems like an answer only Charles Dickens could provide—a tale of two cities. But instead, we wanted Grammar Girl readers and listeners to weigh in on the matter, so we asked people on the Grammar Girl Facebook page what word they would use. Two of the most popular suggestions were "by metro and "by urban but a few people suggested the word interurban and pointed out that it already exists. For example, the entry at dictionary.com lists interurban as an adjective, meaning of, located in, or operating between two or more cities, and also as a noun, meaning a train, bus, etc., or transportation system operating between cities. Popular for about three decades during the early 1900s, the interurban— which was a type of electric railway car similar to a trolley, tram, or streetcar, specialized in stops between cities. The interurban allowed people living in rural communities to experience suburban life by riding the few short miles instead of traveling by horse and buggy and dealing with unpaved roads. Other suggestions from the Facebook group included Unicoastal Nomad by Municipal, by Stateal, and by City. As you can tell, the bi-prefix was popular because it means two or twice. Your bifocals have two lenses and your bicycle has two tires. So if you're splitting your time between two cities, it seemed common for people to gravitate to that bi-prefix for ideas. As an aside, a hyphen isn't typically required after the bi-prefix. However, hyphens are always allowed when they help avoid confusion, and since words such as bi-metro and bi-urban are unfamiliar, we included them in the text version of this podcast because a hyphen makes them more readable. And people tended to include the hyphens too when they were writing them out as their recommendations on Facebook. We enjoyed reading all the suggestions, but since inter-urban already exists, that's our winner— So that's your quick and dirty tip. If you regularly split your time between two or more cities, you can call yourself interurban, just like that 20th century electric railway. That segment was written by Ashley Dodge.
0: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
2: Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally, first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, You'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it RosettaStone.com/grammar? That's 50% off, unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life.
3: Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
1: And now, on to the semicolon in literature. For many writers, picking your favorite punctuation mark is a bit like picking your favorite child. All of them can move you to awe with their power and finesse, and all of them can frustrate and disappoint you with their weaknesses. And don't you dare speak ill of them, any of them and that's why I was surprised when I first saw Kurt Vonnegut throwing shade at the semicolon. His quotation is usually presented in isolation, like this. First rule, do not use semicolons. They are transvestite hermaphrodites representing absolutely nothing. All they do is show you've been to college. Aside from the puzzling and seemingly offensive put-down of transvestite hermaphrodites— And my memories of being taught about semicolons in grade school, not college. I couldn't imagine that any talented writer would so universally dismiss an entire punctuation mark. Not one to take things at face value, I went searching and quickly found that the Vonnegut quotation, so often offered with a giddy air of insider superiority, is taken out of context. Here's the next line. And I realize some of you may be having trouble deciding whether I'm kidding or not. From now on, I'll tell you when I'm kidding. The way he delivers the line, it's still not clear, whether he's saying he was kidding or simply saying that he'll warn us in the future when he is kidding, but at least it casts doubt on his meaning. A further reading of the essay casts more significant doubt because he goes on to disparage Indigenous storytellers. Here's another bit from the essay. I started going to the library in search of reports about ethnographers, preachers, and explorers—those imperialists—to find what sorts of stories they'd collect from primitive people. It was a big mistake for me to take a degree in anthropology anyway, because I can't stand primitive people. They're so stupid. And then he went on to disparage Shakespeare, writing, Shakespeare was as poor a storyteller as any Arapaho and Arapahoara a tribe of Native Americans. At this point, it should be clear that it's probably a good idea to take any advice in Vonnegut's essay with a grain of salt, or at least not to take it literally. It seems like he's being hyperbolic. He ends any lingering doubt when he uses a semicolon later in the essay, and then writes, And there, I've just used a semicolon, which at the outset I told you never to use. It's to make a point that I did it, The point is, rules only take us so far, even good rules. So it goes. Vonnegut's novels aren't dripping with semicolons, but semicolons aren't absent either, and he uses them when he could have used something else. Here's an example from page 15 of Cat's Cradle. In it, Vonnegut uses semicolons in a way that isn't considered standard. He uses them to separate items in a series where, normally, a writer would use commas— Here's the sentence. Only I was going to kindergarten, semicolon. Frank was going to junior high, semicolon, and father was going to work on the atom bomb. Normally, you just use commas in that sentence. Semicolon frequency is more a matter of style than rules. Vonnegut favored a simple writing style in short sentences, which limits the need for semicolons. The same is true of Frank McCourt, Semicolons are sparse in his Pulitzer Prize winning biography, Angela's Ashes, for example. But other notable authors use more semicolons. The second sentence of The Luminaries, winner of the Man Booker Prize, by Eleanor Catton, is a beastly 127 words, and it contains a semicolon. They're easy to find throughout that book. Here's a shorter example that uses the semicolon for one of its standard purposes to join independent clauses. He was near trembling with fatigue. Semicolon. He was carrying a leaden weight of terror in his gut. Semicolon. He felt shadowed, even dogged. Semicolon. He was filled with dread. Flipping through my bookshelf, I had no trouble finding semicolons in Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco and Neuromancer by William Gibson, and found they were quite common in The Goldfinch by Donna Tart and Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen the next time someone quotes Vonnegut to you about semicolons, now you know that you can safely ignore the advice. But in the bigger picture, going through these literary examples of semicolons made me realize that it may not be a good idea for writers who aren't fiction writers to take punctuation advice from those who are fiction writers, no matter how successful or brilliant those fiction writers may be. Creative writing often eschews the kind of clear and concise prose that's the workhorse of effective nonfiction and business writing. Semicolons usually make their home in long sentences, and short sentences usually work well in business. If you have a 127-word sentence in an email message, job description, or annual report, you should be thinking about how to simplify it or break it up not thinking about where you should put the semicolon and hoping you'll win a literary prize. Although it's not as dramatic or creative as Vonnegut's line, my more realistic advice is don't use a lot of semicolons at work. I wrote that segment, and a version of it originally appeared in Office Pro magazine. And now, off the cuff. Have you ever been asked to speak extemporaneously, you know, at the last minute? If you have, you've had to speak off the cuff. The phrase off the cuff refers to something that's done on the spur of the moment, without any practice or rehearsal. It describes how you might get ready for an unexpected speech. Imagine yourself in a room full of people, put on the spot. You're trying to think of what to say, and you realize you'd better take notes, but there's no paper. So you write them frantically on the cuff of your shirt. If you're wearing a sweatshirt, that might not work so well, but imagine you were wearing an old-time dress shirt—one with stiff, starched, white cuffs. Those cuffs were sometimes several inches long. You could write a lot of notes on something that long. Plus, cuffs and collars back then were often detachable. They buttoned on and off, and when they got grungy, you could wash them without having to wash your whole shirt. So even if you ruined your cuff with writing, you could throw it away and clip on a new one tomorrow. A Sears Roebuck catalog from 1897 calls them splendid for wear and unequaled for comfort. A 1912 catalog from another retailer calls them good-looking, simple, practical, easily laundered, instantly put on and taken off. And if you read your notes from them, you'd be speaking off the cuff. Maybe we should bring back detachable cuffs. We could all start writing notes on them, and we'd be prepared any time we were asked to speak. So that's your tidbit for today. If you do something off the cuff, you do it unrehearsed and on the spur of the moment. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com and on Twitter as dragonflyedit. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl, If you're looking for new podcasts to try, we have two great new shows at Quick and Dirty Tips, Unknown History for you history lovers out there, and Who Knew, which is filled with fabulous life hacks. Unknown History and Who Knew. Check them out. That's all. Thanks for listening.